0: Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is uh, Dan Eikensen. I'm director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. Um, I got to say, it's been a pretty big year uh, for trade policy. Um, I've been at Cato for 15 years, and I don't recall the, the agenda being so bustling uh, before. You know, this year we had our Trade Promotion Authority debate, and then the vote, and the completion. Uh, of the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations uh, earlier this month, uh, and I guess a shifting into higher gear. I'm told uh, on the on the, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership negotiation, negotiating front, um, and I think that's good news. Uh, but it's also created some concerns around the world. Uh, what does it mean for the WTO and the multilateral system if some of the largest economies? in the WTO are turning their attention elsewhere. Um, What does it mean for uh, non-discriminatory treatment? And, uh, you know, I think those are important things to worry about, Um, but, you know, we've been soliciting a lot of opinions. We had a a conference here a couple weeks ago on on the TTIP and we collected a lot of essays to get people's opinions about what the impact is going to be. And I think the jury's out, but there are a lot, a lot of more optimistic, hopeful sorts of um, portrayals of what to expect, um, and, and that, the, that these, the TPP or the TTIP won't be trade diverting. It'll actually encourage uh, more trade, and it will extend uh, benefits to third countries and things like that. One of the arguments that we've heard is, you know, that maybe this is a U.S. attempt to sort of short circuit the rising uh, prominence of the BRICS countries. Uh, turning away from the WTO um, that's that's that argument is makeable I think um, I, I think the more plausible explanation is that the WTO as a um, negotiating forum uh, no longer works uh, maybe you can achieve plurilateral agreements um, but the the, the the era of the big massive uh, multilateral round with 161 countries now uh, I think is, is, is impossible So the TPP is sort of a response to that, uh, as is uh, the TTIP. Um, So um, in June of this year, I was invited by the U.S. State Department to go to Russia um, as part of its public diplomacy program to reach out and talk a little bit about the TTIP and the TPP um, because there were concerns that it's being mischaracterized. And... uh, you know, it, was, it, it wasn't contradictory to my position to, to make the point that these aren't exclusive uh, agreements, ultimately. Uh, but um, I, uh, I thought about going, and I said, you know, I'm reading these stories in the paper that this is being portrayed as this plot, uh, this Western plot to uh, encircle uh, Russia and marginalize it. Um, so I figured I was going to assuage concerns, and, and I had great meetings with business uh, and academia um, with government officials, with media, and there was a lot of skepticism uh, I was port- The way I was portraying TPP as you know something that Russia uh, in better times uh, is going to be able to join, something that China is going to be able to join. Um, the, uh, one of the things I heard a lot of in Russia was you know Russia labored for eighteen years to get into the World Trade Organization and it finally was granted admission in, in two thousand twelve. Uh, which was about the same time that the United States was immersing itself in the TPP and Europe was negotiating with Canada and Korea and other countries. And there was this perception in Russia that just as soon as it got in, uh, the West was uh, turning its back and and looking elsewhere and that it seemed like they had a legitimate reason to take it personally. Um, But the the points I made throughout the trip was that that wasn't the case, that TPP was the alternative. And in fact, there are other architectures that are emerging in, uh, around the world. In fact, the, the China famously has, has been pursuing the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, also known as the ASEAN, plus six. There's the Asian in, uh, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, the, the, the New Silk Road, the one road, one belt. Uh, and of course, there's the, um, the Eurasian Economic Union, which we talked about quite a lot uh, when I was in, in, in Russia. Um, and I, I, I try to make the point that, look, the, the the TPP's ultimate aim is to become this free trade area of the Asia-Pacific, which was an APEC objective uh, articulated 20 years ago uh, in Indonesia. Uh, and that's the likely vehicle for integrating, for accommodating entry for of China and Russia, APEC members, it's supposed to be open to all APEC members, um, and eventually multilateralizing these things. So... What became sort of thematic in my, my talks there was this idea that these emerging architectures are not competitive. Uh, they, may have that, they may be easily portrayed that way by media. But we're talking about a world that is you know, starving for development still. There's plenty of uh, uh, projects, plenty of ways to integrate the global economy. And I see these things as complementary. I see um, the, you know, the Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank uh, the EAEU as sort of complementary um, um, projects working in tandem to sort of integrate the world. Um, so I don't, I'm not going to talk too much about what the EAEU is because we have experts here to tell you what what they are. Um, but it's it, it's a it's an economic union between Russia and Belarus and Kazakhstan, uh, Armenia and and the Kyrgyz Republic. Um, Armenia and, and Greece recently exceeded this year. The, the union took effect on January 1st of this year. Uh, and it's, uh, its member states, This is you know, if you look at the map, you've seen the map. Actually, when I was in Russia, I flew from Moscow to Vladivostok. And it's, it's the same distance or the same time from New York to Moscow as it is from Moscow to Vladivostok, just to give you an idea of how big <laughs> that landmass is. So the EAEU covers 15%. Uh, of, the, of the globe's uh, surface, land surface, that's 20 million square kilometers. And I think the goal of the union is to achieve deeper economic integration, uh, to include new members, uh, and to seek market openings with other countries through free trade agreements. The EAU has a free trade agreement with Vietnam. Uh, it is, I believe, uh, pursuing uh, free trade agreements, or at least at the uh, conceptual stages with Egypt, uh, maybe Israel, India, and there were negotiations with New Zealand that were going on, which have been suspended uh, in light of uh, you know, foreign policy matters. Um, so I'm going to turn this over to the the, the, the panelists here, and they're going to give you uh, a greater perspective on this. Uh, Minister Balavaya is going to speak about in, uh, e, uh, the EAU's integration, its enlargement, uh, relations with third countries. Um, perhaps including some of these uh, trade agreements that we've just described. Uh, Brigitte is going to speak uh, about the post-WTO accession trade policy of Russia and its implications for the EAEU. Uh, And then Dan is gonna speak generally, I think, about the business climate in Russia, uh, the EAEU overall, but maybe maybe more focused on Russia, and discuss prospects for US uh, business in the region. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna introduce all the speakers now and then they'll each come up uh, in sequence and speak for about 15 minutes, and then afterwards we can engage in some, some Q&A. Uh, so uh, Tatiana Balavaya is a member of the board or minister at the Eurasian Economic Commission, uh, which is re- responsible for development of integration and macroeconomics. Uh, the Eurasian Economic Commission is the permanent regulatory uh, body of the EA, uh, EU, uh, which, which I said includes Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, the Kree's Republic, and Russia. Uh, and its purpose uh, is to ensure the functioning and development of the EAEU and to prepare proposals for, its, uh, for further integration. Uh, prior to uh, her cabinet appointment here, her present appointment, uh, Minister Valvoya was uh, head of the Russian government's uh, Department of International Cooperation. And prior to that, she held uh, different positions in ministries in the Russian government, In the administration of the President of the Russian Federation. Uh, From 1989 to 1994, uh, she was a member of the permanent mission of the USSR and then subsequently the Russian Federation to the European Union in Brussels, uh, responsible for economic and monetary affairs. She's also the author of numerous publications on international economic relations, uh, regional economic and monetary integration, economics, and the history of Europe and Eurasia. She holds a PhD in economics, is also a professor of International Economics uh, and International Economic Relations at the Financial University of Moscow. Um, Our second speaker will be Brigitte Hansel. She's a a German national, uh, and she's also the World Bank's uh, lead economist uh, for the Russian Federation and program leader in the Europe and and Central Asia region. Uh, Prior to 2013, Brigitte worked for the World Bank's program in Asia, Africa, and Europe, and she has experience working in countries at all income levels. Um, she's, she, she is specialized in macroeconomic management, economic and fiscal policy, and institution building. Before jo- joining the bank, Brigitte worked in academia uh, and at a number of bilateral and multilateral organizations, including the British Department uh, for International Development and in the United Nations Development Program. Brigitte also holds a PhD in economics, as well as a master's degree from the London School of Economics. Uh, she completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco, and Berkeley. Uh, her first degree first degree was a master's in economics from the Humboldt University in Berlin. Uh, Daniel Russell is the president and CEO of the U.S.-Russia Business Council. Uh, previously, he was deputy assistant secretary of state uh, responsible for relations with Russia, uh, Ukraine, Moldova, and Belarus, and for international security and arms control issues uh, in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs until j- July 2013. Uh, Dan has uh, co-authored and co-led Together with the White House senior director for Russia, implementation of President Obama's strategy, a uh, strategic policy reset, if you recall, with Russia uh, in the Obama administration's first term. He also led the creation and oversaw the development of U.S.-Russia the Presidential Commission with 20 working groups involving 60 U.S. and Russian government agencies. Um, uh, he's been, as a career member of the Foreign Service, Mr. Russell served as chief of staff to Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs William Burns. 2008 to 2009, and Deputy Chief of Mission in Moscow from 2005 to 2008, and as Deputy Chief of Mission in Kazakhstan from 2000 to 2003. Uh, Mr. Russell holds a BA in Poli Sci from the University of Maine, and a Master's in International Affairs from George Washington University. So with that, I'm going to turn the podium over to Minister Balavaya, and I'll have a seat, and welcome. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dan. It's a really great pleasure for me to be here with you today, to speak especially in the Hayek auditorium, because that gave me a chance to reread Hayek's views on economic integration. And during my presentation, I will try to show you that while building Eurasian Economic Union, we are trying to follow his liberal advice and his liberal ideas and sometimes maybe even to a greater extent than our European colleagues. And thank you, Dan, especially for a very thorough presentation, uh, introduction to the Eurasian Economic Union, but allow me to um, uh, correct one crucial mistake. It's very crucial. The time difference between uh, Moscow and New York is much smaller than the time difference between the Eurasian Economic Union. But uh, again, it's a a possibility for me uh, maybe to um, correct some other stereotypes and uh, myths which surround the Eurasian Economic Union. You said that uh, many people in uh, Eurasian Economic Union you uh, feel uh, perceive Trans-Pacific Partnership wrongly and see it as a Western plot. But I think that at the same time, quite often in the West, Eurasian Economic Union is perceived wrongly and is considered to be a Russian plot. And that's a very current-going stereotype that Eurasian Economic Union is about restoring the Soviet Union. It's about uh, some kind of a Imperialistic project of Russia, and sometimes I can even hear that it's a spur of the moment reaction towards geopolitical tensions, towards sanctions, etc. And nothing can be further from reality, because the Eurasian Economic Union, the idea of this union, appeared many years ago. Practically exactly also 20 years ago, you mentioned about the birth of the idea of Trans Pacific Partnership. It was uh, in 1994, and it was initiated not by Russia, but by Kazakhstan. The president of Kazakhstan, Sultan Nazarbayev, in his speech in Moscow University, suggested that post-Soviet states should create Eurasian Economic Union, a union based on absolutely different principles than the Soviet Union. And, of course, uh, the beginning of the 90s was the period of, a uh, very fruitful period for integration ideas. And really, in all parts of the world, these regional integration ideas started uh, obtaining practical forms. European Union appeared in 1993, uh, NAFTA in 1994. Trans-Pacific Partnership idea and the idea of Eurasian Economic Union was born at, that same, at the same time and we in Eurasia started building uh, our integration process. Uh, It took us quite a long period of time and uh, there were many treaties, many attempts, and finally, uh, global economic crisis in the year 2008 helped us because we understood that in order to minimize the consequences of the economic uh, crisis, In order to find our place in changing global economic infrastructure, we really have to fasten our regional economic integration and to put all these ideas into practice. And in the year 2010, Customs Union appeared. In the year 2012, uh, 17 agreements on single economic space came into being and As a result, in the year 2015, Eurasian Economic Union was born. The Treaty on the Eurasian Economic Union was signed in the year 2014. It was a result of codification of the previous treaties, but also the result of deepening our integration vision, of deepening our integration attempts. And uh, you also mentioned that during the first uh, year of the life of the union, two new member uh, states, Armenia and Kyrgyzstan, joined, and now it comprises five countries. And what's the idea of the Eurasian Economic Union? It's purely economic in nature. Here we're absolutely different from the European Union. We do not have political dimension, we do not have political uh, union, we have only economy, and that's our consciousness choice, because we really think that we better stick only to economic cooperation. Of course, our countries have very good political links, they have, uh, uh, they participate in different uh, regional institutions, different regional organizations, but Eurasian Economic Union is only about economy. And, uh, This is a new uh, organization, of regional economic organization, with supranational authority in uh, the face of the Eurasian Economic Commission, and uh, the essence of the treaty is to preserve and to create four freedoms, freedom of movement of goods, services, and capital, and uh, uh, people. When we were uh, thinking about the essence of the economic union, as I said, we were, I think, a little bit more liberal uh, liberal than the European uh, economic community when it was created in the year 1957. But That's not a criticism, it's just different economic uh, situation in the 50s and now. When uh, European Economic Community was built, it was built in the period of dirigist uh, uh, triumph, and it was really very dirigist in uh, nature, though it was uh, nicknamed common market, By the mid of uh, 1980s, it was absolutely clear that after 30 years of integration, there is no common market. And the project of single internal market was born in 1985, and by 1992, single uh, internal market, as we know it, was born. We uh, used the European experience, and we decided to start... First of all, with a single internal market in all spheres. uh, When we speak about freedom of movement of goods, we created customs union as I said in the year 2010, and uh, from the day one, the customs union uh, consisted not only of common uh, customs tariff, customs uh, customs code, but we also lifted all internal borders, all internal checks, so that is the version of the customs union which appeared in the European Union only in 1993. But we're not satisfied uh, with the state of affairs even though we do have a fully fledged customs union. We want to have single market of goods uh, so all our goods produced in one country or legally imported to one of the country could circulate freely all around the union. Practically, in the majority of sectors, we already have single market. Anything which is legally imported or produced in one uh, country of the union can circulate around the union, with very few exceptions. That's such sectors as alcohol, tobacco, uh, oil, gas, oil products, electricity, and pharmaceuticals. In these sectors, we do not have any customs, we do not have any frontier checks, but in order to circulate legally, and I stress the word legally, for example, for uh, alcohol or pharmaceuticals, the company have to go f- through national procedures in other countries as well. And it can take time and money. And what we have in mind to create single markets in these spheres as well. And the first single market in these sensitive uh, sectors will appear on the 1st of January, 2016, in pharmaceuticals, and that will lead to a situation that, for example, pharmaceuticals produced to standards of our union, for example, in Belarus, in order to be legally sold out all around the union, don't have to go around any new registration or licensing or other procedures. Of course, that will greatly increase investment potential of these countries because anybody can invest into one country and to obtain an access to this big market. The similar will have, uh, take place in electricity in the year 2019. In tobacco, alcohol, we are now harmonizing excise duties. That's the only problem with um, Uh, uh, free circulation of these goods around the market, and oil gas uh, will be uh, within the regime of single market by the year 2025. In all the other sectors, we already have single market. Speaking about services, here, preparing the treaty, we also, I think, made a very ambitious, uh, um, reached a very uh, uh, ambitious result, because in the treaty, for the first time, uh, we already have Single market in services in 43 sectors of economy. That means that a producer of services who is of origin of one of the countries can provide similar services all around the Union. And we plan to increase the number of sectors uh, which will be within this single market regime step by step, sector by sector. We will add. Uh, 21 uh, new sectors when we finish preparing uh, the necessary harmonization ma- measures in these sectors. But I am speaking now about single market. As far as non-discrimination of services, it's already in place. We can't discriminate any, uh, anybody on uh, the basis of uh, his uh, country of registration. Speaking about a freedom of movement of capitals. Here, I would say that we also have a very ambitious aim by the year 2025 to create a common financial market. We are not speaking about common currency or single currency. We really are looking forward very attentively into European experience, and we don't think it's time for that. But we think it's time for a common financial service market. That will mean that, for example, any bank registered, for example, in Armenia or Kazakhstan, and having one license from national regulator will be able to work with this license all around the Union. Of course, in order to reach this very ambitious aim, we have to have a certain harmonization in this sphere, and we will have a supranational authority which will set rules for this whole market. Of course, all the national regulators will also be in place. And the fourth freedom, freedom of movement of people. And uh, here, um, uh, we already have complete uh, freedom of movement of citizens and workers. And any person, uh, citizen of one of the countries or the union can work all around the union without special procedures, without any quarters, any exams, and uh, we have mutual uh, recognition uh, procedure for diplomas, and we also have in the treaty necessary provisions for social and pension rights, etc. And that leads me... To a situation uh, uh, when I said that when we are doing this, we are really following uh, Hayek's views on the economic integration, because that's interesting. That when he was writing about economic integration, he said that leading uh, that mobility of uh, people, capital, and uh, other. Uh, Resources will lead to a situation when the governments will not be able uh, to provide too tough rules on their citizens, on their businesses, etc. Because otherwise, these businesses will go elsewhere around the union. And that will lead to a more liberal economic environment. And that's exactly the case, what we are doing in our union. We call it competition of jurisdictions. We consider it's very good that we do have different national legislations in certain spheres, in taxes, for example, in social security, in other spheres. But uh, we have an understanding that any business which is registered in one country or the union can uh, provide, there is, uh, the, uh, provide uh, its goods or services all around the union. And that leads to a real situation when uh, our governments really started to lift the obstacles to business. Because, for example, I remember how in Russia we fought a lot in order to uh, lift obstacles to business. But it's very difficult. Now we're in a situation when Russian businessmen come to Russian government and uh, tell them, if you don't change the situation here and here, we'll register in Kazakhstan or in Armenia with more liberal regime. And the result of this competition of jurisdiction, to my mind, is very positive. Today, the new Doing Business ratings were announced, and all of our countries really jumped up in this rating, significantly jumped up. Armenia is now 35; it used to be 45. Um, Russia is 51, uh, Kazakhstan is 44, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And what's interesting Kyrgyzstan which last year was 102, this year is 70, uh, is 67. It's a great jump. And I personally think that one of the reasons for this improvement, for example, for Kyrgyzstan, is the preparation towards the union. Because preparing the union, it had to change laws in, in it, uh, um, um, legislation. So we really think that this situation leads to a more liberal, more business friendly environment in our union. Of course, we do have single policies, common policies in such spheres as trade policy. Three minutes, okay. In, a, in, a, um, in trade policy, etc. But we mostly think about the markets, not policies. And within the uh, last minutes, I would like to uh, speak about international dimension of our union. It's also very liberal, uh, as we see it, because we are not building Fortress Eurasia. We are really trying to be open to our partners. You are absolutely right to say that we already signed an agreement on free trade with Vietnam. We finalized the agreement with New Zealand, but it was put on hold by our New Zealand colleagues because of geopolitical tensions, but I hope sooner or later we will return to this agreement. We started uh, recently negotiations with Israel, We are having uh, groups with uh, India and Egypt. We have about 40 requests uh, uh, to start such negotiations. We also have a practice of signing memorandums between our commission and governments, for example, Peru, Chile, Mongolia, in order to start working together closely. In May, it was announced that we start negotiations on trade and economic uh, agreement with China. It's not on free trade, it's a non-preferential agreement. But during this agreement and working together, we are trying to uh, find interconnection between Eurasian Economic Union and Chinese initiative One Belt, One Road. And at the same time, we are looking forward in the future to establish common economic space with China. With the European Union the idea is similar. For the last five years we were speaking about necessity of building common economic space with European Union. And I personally think that what the United States is doing uh, with Trans Pacific Partnership, with Transatlantic Partnership, is practically the same as what we would like to do. Because we think that the future global economic architecture will be a global architecture based on key players, key countries, big economies, regional economic organizations, regional economic groups, and a system of equal partnerships between them. And so we think that, for example, uh, United States have a Trans-Pacific Partnership and Transatlantic Partnership. Europe has a Transatlantic Partnership. It might have a Trans. Eurasian partnership, we would like to have it. And Eurasian Economic Union would also have a partnership with China, and so on and so on, and this will be the basis of our new global economy as a system of equal economic partnerships. Thank you.
2: Okay, good. I'm very happy you invited us. Thank you. Um, And I congratulate you to a gender balanced panel. (laughs) Very um, outstanding. And also to a, a geographically balanced panel, because Natalia and I are based in Russia. And I believe you're based here. So I think it gives maybe an interesting perspective for the discussion that we will have afterwards. And that's why we were asked to keep our presentations short. So I will show you a few highlights of what I wanted to contribute to the discussion, which is uh, really <clears throat> based on a much bigger resor- research we did in the World Bank uh, that related mainly on uh, uh, Russia in its trade and foreign direct investment competitiveness in the post uh, WTO accession and Eurasian Customs Union environments. Because of course we have several countries now that are in both in the Eurasian Customs Union and um, uh, in agreement with uh, the WTO. And we had two pieces that focused much more on Ru- Russia specific issues like export competitiveness and FDI performance in Russia and in Russia's regions. Because as then pointed out, this is a huge country. Uh, and uh, regions there have the size of several countries that I'm coming from in uh, Europe. So this is a very heterogeneous uh, country. And of course, some countries are close to Europe. Some countries are close to China and the Far East. So it's a real challenge uh, for uh, trade and connectivity. And we also looked at services trade and uh, its uh, role in increasing its competitiveness and a, a chance of Russia to increase trade performance. And as a final piece, we really thought to look at this uh, overlap of the ECU uh, regulations and uh, the WTO tariff and non-tariff policy challenges. And from that point, I wanted to Oops. I don't know how it works. Ah, here. sorry. I wanted to just highlight a few findings that you might find interesting because it's really not so much related just to the ECU, but what does it mean uh, to be uh, an ECU member in this more global environment. So when we looked at opportunities and challenges in this post-WTO accession environment, of course, ultimately, these are good news for households, for market participants. Households will face lower import prices uh, as import tariffs fall. And firms have higher uh, certainty that import tariffs uh, on the goods that they buy will not raise above uh, the bounds. And actually, exporters may really profit from new trade opportunities with WTO members. And more importantly, perhaps changes that uh, are related to the regulatory framework to adhere to the WTO disciplines may improve market efficiency. As you know, for example, under the accession protocol, Russia's trade-weighted average most-favored nation tariff, including specific uh, tariffs, is scheduled to drop substantially from 7.8% in 2012 to 5.6 by 2020. And its non-tariff measures, which is, I think, much more important, will be subject to WTO disciplines. And this includes the sanitary and phytosanitary and the technical uh, barriers to trade agreements. But we also expect some challenges, of course, uh, as you can guess uh, from uh, the heading of this slide. So at the same time uh, where we see uh, the reduction in import tariffs really intensifying, of course, competition facing uh, Russian firms, and they might uh, lose uh, some uh, customers. But most of all, uh, Russia's W2O accession will also imply important changes in the common external tariff and other trade regulations of the Eurasian Customs Union. And you heard already that since 2010-11, Russia has been active in the Eurasian Customs Union with Kazakhstan and Belarus and has removed most most duties on Russian exports to the ECU, but also extended uh, the use of Russian non-tariff measures, particularly technical regulations to the other ECU countries. And this is perhaps a challenge if there should be a a further harmonization uh, with Russia's WTO commitments. So we looked really uh, into these three issues when we uh, try to look at what happens if tariff and non-tariff policy if you're a member of the WTO and the ECU at uh, the same time and they relate to changes in tariffs, non-tariff measures. Uh, due to Russia's WTO and ECO commitments, and how the impact was on uh, Kazakhstan and Belarus, for which we had data. The analysis was done in 1314. Uh, 14 And um, I will f- present you a few key uh, messages uh, from uh, these uh, three issues that we looked at. And of course, this was a World Bank team that worked on it, not just me, Uh, so I'm deeply indebted to several colleagues of mine like Ian Gilson and Michael Ferrantina and Gabriela Schmidt. Main messages on tariffs. What we see is that uh, Russia's import due to Russia's WTO tariff concessions are likely to be quite modest. And increases in Russia's exports due to trade um, diversion caused by the common external tariff are likely to be small as well. And this is simply because EU C- ECU countries receive a relatively small share of Russia's exports, and therefore offer limited opportunities for trade diversion, which will in, case, in any case be reversed through a multilateral tariff liberalization, meaning the WTO. So if you look, for instance, at the export um, destinations for Russia, that uh, Russia's export to Kazakhstan and Belarus accounted only for 8% of the total exports in 2013. And even if you would think that the ECU is expanding to all 12 uh, member states of the Commonwealth of independent state, the CIS country, this would still only account uh, for 14% of Russia's total exports. And you can also break it down for non-fuel exports, uh, which is a very similar picture. I think I just wanted to point it out because even here, if we look at the entire CIS market, if it would become part of the ECU um, 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 market, it is still smaller than the EU market. So it's just, this is the reason why the impact of uh, the ECU for Russia is just simply uh, less. And it's a bit different, of course, for Kazakhstan and Belarus, where the trade with Russia has a different impact. And this leads also to the second main findings on the tariff side, that due to the ECU countries only constituting a small share of Russia's global market, uh, continued uh, multilateral WTO tariff liberalization is of far greater importance uh, to Russia than actually ECU policy. And this is, again, non-politically, this is purely from an economic uh, standpoint. So in respect to tariff impacts, we find that for most products and sectors, the impact of the WTO is likely to be much more significant uh, than that of the ECU as far as tariffs go. And this also means that the success of Russia's exports really depends primarily on how well they compete uh, in the larger and uh, higher income markets, and export promotion strategies, whether focusing on trade policy or competitiveness, uh, should really focus on uh, the global uh, trade as a whole for Russia. Now, as tariffs decline, for the most... Uh, For most goods, uh, non-tariff measures could well become more significant obstacles for deeper trade integration. And of course, this is indeed the goal of uh, the ECU, to harmonize also non-tariff measures across its members. And in our study, we conclude that, in fact, the impact of NTMs in Russia and the ECU, though quite difficult to quantify, and people who deal with this on a daily basis know what I'm talking about are really potentially more important for the market than tariff changes because of the significant divergence between the Russian standards, and that's the GOES standards, the GASDORSTVENI standard, the state standard, and the standards prevailing in most of the Russia's uh, trading partners. And this is really because there is also a fundamentally different philosophy behind these standards. Um, as you know, the ghost uh, standards date back to the Soviet era and is the current basis for product and process standards in the ECU and those for non-tariff barriers imposed, um, uh, imposed on imported goods. International standards, as you know, um, set. Uh, basic requirements for public safety and health, but allow really the private sector wide latitude to produce products uh, differentiated by consumer taste. And the private sector really imposes product quality through supply chain uh, rather than state uh, uh, imposing it by the end of pipe inspection. While the philosophy behind the GOES standards, and this is historically because it backs to, uh, goes back to the Soviet era, and those of other countries diverge, diverge in important ways from these international standards, uh, they cover product characteristic, product techniques, and packaging um, for processed products, and are designed to really ensure that, in this, that the same goods produced by different firms Uh, are highly compatible and interchangeable. So you can see that is, for that reason, often argued that this detail and specificity and rigidity also that these standards create stifles innovations and allows quite little role for firms to... um, uh, 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 be compliant, uh, but also for the government, on the other side, to uh, monitor uh, compliance. And uh, it's a problem for uh, science-based risk assessment of safety and health issues, ultimately. So these standards, or when we talk about them broader as part of the non-tariff measures, may really pose uh, potential issue for Russia's export competitiveness ultimately globally, not just within the ECU. And also pose reasons for friction with other WTO partners, which adhere of course to international standards. I think wait, wait, I think I want to just highlight a few issues what we are talking about. For instance, on sanitary and phytosanitary NTMs, uh, you see that, um, sorry, uh, almost there, there are many goods uh, where sanitary and phytosanitary Uh, uh, non-tariff measures are imposed that are not agricultural products in Russia. And this is, as you see here, chemicals, plastic, and rubbers, leather, furs, wood products. And we put really uh, here a comparison uh, four SPS measures uh, of uh, Russia is the red bar and uh, Kazakhstan, the black, and the EU regulations. So that's a, a significant divergence in uh, what uh, are seen as reasonable uh, SPS uh, measures in different countries. Uh, for technical barriers to trade, we actually see much more similar picture between um, Russia, the ECU, and uh, the rest uh, of the world, where we see quite high frequency of TPDs. And that's related uh, or reflecting a complex and elaborate uh, regulatory system. But what we see, interestingly enough, that here we see a large difference still between, for instance, Russia and Kazakhstan, which also tells you that perhaps there needs to be internally in the ECU ECU, still a lot of uh, harmonization of uh, their measures. So basically, what we identify is that the non-tariff measures are really the bigger issue overall when we look at ECU and global uh, trade uh, um, with uh, Russia, and um, it may be it may t- make make time make significant time and effort for. Um, these regulations to be brought into conformity uh, with uh, WTO and uh, international uh, standards. And this is also some of the concerns we see from um, Russia's trading partners over various of these NTM issues. And I'm sure you're very aware of several of them. Uh, Russia has requirements that imported goods obtain certification of conformity with Russian technical regulations related to textiles, leather, footwear, alcoholic beverages. And since Russia's uh, um, August 2012 accession to the WTO, there has been continuing work to bring this regulation into conformity with WTO uh, requirements. And such standards are also referred to in the WTO-TBT agreement. And since standards adopted by the EEC for imports into the EU, so you also become parts of uh, Russia's uh, regulations. Uh, they're also subject to w discipline. So what is perhaps uh, more important uh, for Russia and ECU countries is that consumers uh, in global value chains prefer goods produced at international standards. And to the extent that the product characteristics specified uh, by the ghost uh, standards diverge from those um, as expected in the broader international market, they're really l- likely to lead to products produced in the ECU uh, being less able to satisfy global demand. So it is a real pure economic uh, question uh, to make sure that uh, there is a convergence uh, and a case for streamlining and updating these technical regulations to match international practices and take advantage of uh, this uh, trade uh, opportunity that is posed by the ECU, but also by the WTO membership for all of its member states. Thank you.
3: It's always a challenge to be, you know, the, th- the third speaker uh, at uh, f- 4 o'clock in the afternoon, but I'll do what I can to try to uh, make it lively. Um, thanks, Dan, for uh, hosting this. I think it's uh, important to try to have a factual discussion of some of these uh, trade issues, particularly regarding the Eurasian Economic Union as we go forward. Uh, <clears throat> I'd like to do something a little different and uh, touch about uh, on three areas. Uh, the first one is a little bit uh, on the Russian economy because that's kind of the backdrop Uh, to what we're talking about, Uh, and uh, then to uh, touch on uh, American business attitudes uh, towards what's going on uh, in the uh, the Russian economy, Uh, and finally to give a a business take on the Eurasian Economic Union. Uh, And I should say at the beginning, uh, for those of you who don't know much about uh, the uh, U.S.-Russia Business Council, uh, we are probably the only trade association uh, in Washington uh, that works uh, on these issues uh, we uh, have uh, almost all of the largest uh, investors in uh, businesses from the United States who do business in Russia uh, as members, uh, and we're a member-based uh, organization. So first, let me say a little bit about the Russian economy and where we are. Russian economy is probably going to contract about three to four uh, percent this year based on uh, most estimates. Expectation for next year uh, is not great either. Uh, probably zero to one percent uh, growth. But remember, when we, uh, even when we talk about growth and, and that, we're talking about year-on-year growth from a very low base uh, of this year. Um, I personally think the economic contraction uh, in Russia is bottomed out, but I don't think anyone will know for sure until we reach the end of the first quarter in 2016 and have better numbers. I thought it was interesting uh, at the IMF and World Bank meetings uh, over the weekend in Peru, uh, the emerging markets of greatest concern that were identified were China, Brazil, and Turkey. Uh, And last year, uh, Russia uh, uh, certainly made that list. Uh, Let me talk a little bit about sanctions in Russia, which is something that's talked a lot about here in Washington. I think it's fair to say that sanctions have had a significant uh, effect, uh, particularly on limiting access uh, to international capital markets and discouraging uh, new foreign direct investment. But sanctions are not the major reason for the economic slowdown. Uh, the precipitous uh, drop in oil prices has been far more significant uh, than sanctions. I'm not sure anyone uh, uh, can put a hard number on it, uh, but I think reasonable estimates on the split range from sort of 70% oil prices and 30% sanctions to a 90-10 split on kind of what's behind what we see now. But I think it's important as a backdrop to remember that Russia's biggest economic challenge is neither the price of oil nor sanctions, but declining growth. Russia's GDP trajectory began trending down several years ago uh, when the price of oil was well over $100 a a barrel. And the reason is largely because of structural weaknesses uh, and imbalances. So faced with the oil price crash and the imposition of sanctions, let's look at what Russia has done in response. And I would just uh, note a couple of examples. On the positive side, uh, the central bank has gone to a full float of the ruble and avoided capital controls, something that we think is good. On the not-so-positive side, uh, the government has imposed counter-sanctions by banning imported uh, foodstuffs from the European Union, the United States, and others who have put sanctions on Russia. And that import food ban has driven up uh, food prices by 15 to 20% and driven up inflation, which is now running at over 15% uh, in annualized terms. Uh, and I want to come back to uh, looking at the Russian economy in the context of other emerging markets. And through that lens, despite all these issues, Russia's numbers continue to look comparatively well. Um, Reserves have taken a hit. Uh, Foreign currency reserves are down about a third from January uh, 2014, due uh, largely to the central bank's initial efforts to maintain a strong ruble, but still remain the sixth largest uh, in the world. Um, The corporate debt uh, outlook is improving, uh, ironically in part due to sanctions. Uh, Russian companies started paying down the debt in the second half of last year uh, and are going to make real progress on that, I think, next year. I chose to flag this because corporate debt uh, is one of the issues that makes China, uh, Brazil, and Turkey uh, such a, uh, a risk uh, this year. So uh, it, it's kind of a very different situation than other emerging markets. Um, <clears throat> the current account surplus uh, grew 16% in the first half of this year despite predictions to the contrary. Uh, the state budget deficit is going to be under 3% this year, uh, probably around 3% next year, a uh, number that many countries, probably including the United States, would love to have. Um, Russia recorded a net capital inflow of over $5 billion uh, in the third quarter, uh, uh, the first quarterly net inflow since 2010. Uh, government estimates for full, uh, flight, uh, capital, uh, full year capital flight, none the rest. Uh, range from sort of 65 uh, to 85 billion, so that's a big issue. Um, I think uh, when you look at all these numbers, I would say that uh, the estimates that are done inside Russia and outside don't really differ that markedly, uh, particularly not if you were policymakers. Uh, for instance, the Russian government estimates uh, range from uh, growth next year from 0.7% to about 1%. Uh, if you look at private uh, Western banks, uh, the estimate is sort of from uh, minus 1.2% to about three-tenths of a percent of growth. So they're different. International estimates are slightly more pessimistic, uh, but they're not going to be that, uh, that different. Um, now, I think there's an understanding in Russia that the major challenge is how do, how do they reach the new growth targets they want of 4 to 5% that they've set for themselves? Uh, and I think uh, I've spent a fair amount of time uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Russia, and I think uh, there's a better understanding now than there was before. They understand that the latest global uh, commodity supercycle that began in 2000 is over, and they just can't sit and wait until the price of oil goes back up to $100 a barrel because that's not going to happen. Uh, there's a pretty uh, sharp and very public debate uh, in Russia about how to restart growth uh, there are folks that think central bank ought to be much more interventionist. The government should do more to stimulate the economy uh, with infrastructure med- mega-projects and defense spending. There's others who want to see uh, real structural reforms from pension reform to privatization, uh, and they want the government to help private business, particularly small and medium-sized enterprises. So you've got, and you've got a lot of voices weighing in about how to implement the government's uh, import substitution policy something that's certainly of concern uh, to our member companies. But, you know, we've got a country's leadership that's focused on national security and foreign policy issues, uh, like Syria, not on the economy. Uh, So I think the bottom line is you're going to see a very slow recovery. You're going to see structural reform very unlikely uh, in the short term. And right now I haven't seen a Russian consensus on how exactly the government ought to grow the economy and increase household income. I tell you all of this to give you some idea of the flavor on the economic side, because most of the news we all see here uh, on Russia is focused on uh, Syria and and Ukraine. Um, Now, how does the U.S. business community uh, look at the Russian uh, economy? And I think the view inside the business community doesn't differ markedly from that uh, of their European counterparts, or for that matter, uh, Russian companies in the private sector. Um, I can't really speak to individual company plans. They're pretty hard to sort out because each multinational has a global strategy, and their country strategy is just a piece of that. So sometimes it's hard to discern why did company X do Y move in Russia. Well, to really understand that, you'd have to know what what their internal confidential plans are globally. But let me try to give you kind of a composite picture. I think in general, uh, if I had to characterize the business perspective in the United States on the Russian market, I would say the key words I would put out there are long-term and strategic. Most of our business uh, council's members were in the Russian market before 1998, uh, and all were in by 2005. So they're, if you take that same time horizon looking forward, they're looking beyond current uh, events, and they constantly reassess their long-term strategy. Uh, and let's not lose sight that many of uh, these companies are doing business uh, in Ukraine as well. This is not a political issue for them. It's not an either-or. So it's worth asking, why they get in the Russian market in the first place? It's no secret. Russia's a tough place uh, to do business. The simple answer is size, location, natural resources, and human capital. You've got the world's largest country sitting aside, uh, astride two continents, You've got a historically underserved and underdeveloped market for 140 million people. Uh, And that includes Russia is Europe's largest mobile phone market and one of Europe's largest automotive markets. There's an abundance of uh, natural resources uh, well beyond oil and gas. Uh, They have human capital with a historical track record of excellence in science, math and engineering. And when you look at the potential, if you're looking at it from a business point of view, it's important to recall that Russia's economy nearly doubled in size from the end of the 1998 global crisis to the start of the 2008 financial crisis. The reason I mentioned crisis twice in there is we have another crisis now. It's a different one, but it's not the first one uh, these companies have been through. Um, in, uh, through the end of 2013, according to the Commerce Department, Russia was one of the fastest growing markets uh, for American uh, uh, exports. Now, against this backdrop, companies have been through a very rough 18 months with lots of volatility and uncertainty. The reasons for this, uh, I think, are well known and I won't dwell on them. The oil prices, the geopolitical tension over Ukraine and Syria, the Western response, and the Russian counter-response. Generally speaking, uh, companies have remained committed to the market and to their Russian uh, employees and their customers. Most have seen a drop in their business. If you ask me, what's that look like, if you're you're looking across the board? Uh, Again, pretty hard to say what the overall decline would be. If you push me, I'd say probably 15-plus percent is a fair ballpark estimate for the majority of companies. But this varies greatly sector by sector. Energy, I think, speaks for itself with the oil price drop. But let's say you're in the automotive sector and you're a manufacturer. You've seen overall sales shrink by half. Uh, you've seen sales in devalued rubles, yet the cars you're building have a significant number of components that you're buying and you're paying for in euros or in dollars. So it's a pretty, pretty tough time. If you're a foreign bank, uh, you've had to deal with the effect of sanctions on external financing and, on, and of volatility in uh, Russian policies on the exchange rate. And then, of course, these are kind of the toughest sectors. You go to the other side, if you look at, say, healthcare, um, <clears throat> the prospects of growth in healthcare uh, that's pharma and medical devices, are viewed pretty optimistically. So how do companies deal with this? How do they, uh, they survive this economic slowdown? Well, the effect of sanctions and counter-sanctions were effectively uh, priced in uh, last year, and I think the biggest challenges this year uh, are regulatory, which is how we're going to get to the Eurasian Economic Union in a second. Um, Import substitution and localization uh, policies of the Russian government are certainly a cause uh, for concern, uh, as well as uh, government procurement rules uh, that are clearly going to be more restrictive uh, for foreign business. Uh, You've got implementation of a very complicated law on personal data protection that affects pretty much everybody. So those are all issues that we need to look at. Now, businesses ask themselves, what's the attitude of the, the Russian leadership, uh, towards uh, American business and European business, uh, you know, at what's a pretty difficult time on the, on the political front. And so far, uh, it's, it's been uh, reasonably open uh, to dealing with the issues on the table. Uh, and certainly the Russian government has made some progress. Um, Minister Volovaya talked about the World Bank's uh, latest ease of doing business ratings. Uh, and uh, Russia's move up to 51 um, is the best of the BRICS. Um, The World Economic Forum's uh, Global Competitiveness Index rates Russia 45 out of the 140 countries surveyed, Uh, another modest increase. Uh, We've seen Prime Minister Medvedev uh, did an article in a very influential economic journal uh, talking about the need to increase competition, uh, to develop Russia's human capital, to compete in the global economy, and to do more to attract both international capital investment and technology transfer. These are all things uh, that business uh, would welcome, uh, and the, the the trick in Russia is usually is lots of good words. Everybody knows kind of what needs to be done to fix the economy, uh, but so far we haven't seen uh, the action uh, to make uh, to make that happen. Um, so so we got plenty of issues, but my point is there's an openness to discuss them. Third thing I'd like to talk about is uh, the, the attitude towards the Eurasian Economic Union, and I think. Uh, to put it concisely, uh, business views it as an opportunity. Uh, The stated goals uh, are are obviously pretty good. Establishment of a single market for goods, services, uh, capital, and labor. Harmonization of economic legislation. Common policies in uh, each sector of the economy. Uh, You've got trade opportunities with the countries uh, inside the Eurasian Economic Union, uh, plus the other countries like Vietnam that they're starting to uh, negotiate FTAs with. Uh, so that's all good, and that's why our organization, the U.S.-Russia Business Council, has been at the forefront of efforts to reach out uh, to the Eurasian Economic Union uh, and, its, and its commission. Uh, minister Volivaia spoke at our annual meeting in New York uh, earlier this week, and that's certainly not the first time uh, we featured her or some of her, uh, her colleagues. Uh, we did an event earlier in Moscow this year where we had the chairman, Viktor Herestienko, who used to be a minister of trade and industry, Uh, And before he spoke, I asked him, I said, what do you think about foreign investment? What's what's kind of your attitude? Uh, And he said privately, he said, look, as long as their money's green, I don't really care uh, if there are investors from inside the union or from outside. And that's that's what business wants. Um, And uh, certainly, uh, we want to see input. In the process of developing all these regulations and standards uh, that they're going to have to do uh, to make uh, this uh, this union uh, work Uh, you know and our policy position is that business and that means both domestic and foreign should have input into the regulatory process before new regulations and laws are are promulgated Uh, what we hope is that the Commission will develop the muscle memory uh, to do this, and that would be a marked departure uh, not only from Russia but from uh, the, uh, the other countries um, uh, in, uh, in, the, uh, in the area. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm encouraged to hear Minister Valavia talk about best practices. Uh, we can all see that the business climate is better in some of these countries like Armenia and Kazakhstan, uh, and we'd like to see elements of that uh, be imported into Russia. And if the Eurasian Economic Union can help make that happen, uh, that would be a good thing. Um, I think if I were going to try to sum up our concerns, uh, I would say transparency is probably number one. Uh, when we look at the development of regulations and standards, uh, Brigitte mentioned uh, sanitary and phytosanitary concerns, uh, that's uh, that's certainly one issue. Uh, compatibility uh, with uh, uh, WTO commitments uh, is, uh, is another one. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, you can imagine as this change uh, starts to happen, we companies will ask us, "Okay, I'm importing inputs, and I and I see that the VAT rate is different in Kazakhstan than Russia. Well, look, can I just bring in all my inputs through Kazakhstan and pay less? Is that legal? Is this is this going to work? Am I going to run into problems?" So there's plenty of opportunity, but the devil uh, is uh, is in the details, and it's not only about policies; it's about institutions. Uh, for example, over time, uh, the federal anti-monopoly service uh, in Russia has become a real favorite of the business community. Uh, this is this is a group we can work with. Uh, they, they they have a proven track record of being dedicated to creating a level playing field, uh, and they have good leadership. So what happens when they go away and there's some sort of Eurasian economic union institution to replace them? Is it going to be better or is it going to be worse? That, that stuff kind of makes... Um, business nervous. Uh, but I would end on a sort of philosophical note. Uh, when I, I when I worked at the State Department, we were preparing for the uh, APEC Summit in Vladivostok. And we had uh, the United States and Russia had back-to-back uh, APEC uh, chairman years. And I think uh, many of us were uh, struck by how much overlap there was uh, on the actual uh, issues. Uh, and when we went to Vladivostok, we had a team and I remember we met with uh, a couple of the Russian government ministers, and they said, well, what are the major issues? And the head of the U.S. team said, you know, I think we're good. We're pretty much uh, on the same page. Um, and that was, a, to me, a big surprise uh, on these issues. And I think if we have that same atmosphere uh, on the practical cooperative uh, issues that matter uh, to both countries and to our, uh, our future prosperity, in dealing with TPP, TTIP, the Eurasian Economic Union, will probably be okay in the long run. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dan and Brigitte and Mr. Um, Bonfoyer. I, I want to open the, the floor to some questions. Um, but, but before doing that, I just wanted to uh, get back to something that you, that you had mentioned. And I, it, was, it was heartening to hear that Uh, From the Eurasian zone, uh, there is uh, concerns these liberal in the classic liberal sense and the European liberal sense uh, of of, of competition, a a competition of policy, and it's the best policies that are going to be rewarded. That's that's the way that I characterize uh, the global economy. We're all competing for investment, Um, and that strikes me as a little bit different, Dan, than what you said, uh, uh, where you characterized the U.S. business person Uh, asking the Russian person whether or not U.S. dollars were welcome in in Russia. It really should be the other way around, uh, the way way I see it, because policies are on trial. You know, if you don't have good policies, you can just invest and go somewhere else. Um, And so so maybe you can say something about um, what has happened exactly to investment and, and what the biggest deterrent is. But also my question is about the food import ban. Um, when I was in Russia, uh, I, some of what I was being told and some of what I was reading suggested that uh, a lot of Russians thought that it was an export ban, that the Americans and the Europeans were refusing to export to Russia. But it's really an import ban, and, and if if the EAEU is really functioning, why isn't food getting to Russia through Armenia and Kazakhstan and Krieg Republic, and Uh, through those other channels, uh, because the goods should be flowing right across the border unless they are de facto implementing this import ban as well. So is there... You guys care to offer some response?
1: You know, uh, the situation with the import ban is uh, really very sensitive uh, for the member states of the union, because at the very beginning it was decided that it will be and it states as a unilateral ban. No other country or the Union supports this ban, and Russia never asked or pressed anybody to support this ban. And we in the treaty have provisions for similar kinds of uh, temporarily unilateral measures. And when Russia decided to introduce this ban, there were political discussions with the heads of uh, other members of the Union, and it was decided that everybody will try its best uh, Not to create a situation, then uh, products imported, for example, to Belarus will go to Russia. Uh, But, of course, it's not possible. You understand that business is very creative, and when you can earn money and lots of money, of course, lots of imports started going via Belarus to Russia, or via some other places, again, to Russia. And there were lots of discussions, Then lots of people said, well, let's introduce custom checks. Custom frontiers, because we need customs frontiers in order to check them. Of course, that will be temporary. And I am very happy that the result of this discussion was not to rebuild these frontiers. The result of this discussion was absolutely different. We want to have no checks, but we have to be prepared better for the situation when the country uses its legal right to have this unilateral embargo. And we live in a situation when we do have uh, information exchange, electronic uh, devices, everything, but uh, we do not have, uh, as we found out, enough cooperation between our national services, for example, custom services. And the result of this situation was that it led to a great integration, because before this ban, we had this theoretical possibility how A country can have something unilaterally, but we could not imagine what kind of mechanism will at the same time lead to this unilateral possibility and to the necessity to have a single market without any customs checks for all other ideas. Now, I can't say that we are Finally found the solution, but we are much better than we were last year, and we do not have such sensitive um, issues like we had for example last September or October.
3: <clears throat> I'd just add I've had some really awesome shrimp from landlocked Belarus, uh, so commerce uh, usually finds a way to move. Um, <clears throat> on your question about uh, the effect on, uh, on investment, um, I, I would say uh, that the, the, the current uh, political crisis uh, and the uncertainty around it, if, if you're already uh, in the Russian market, you've got a lot of sunk costs. Uh, you're probably going to stay. Uh, you might put your expansion plans on hold, uh, but you're, you, you, can, you can deal with this. If you're a new investor in the States, there's almost no way you're going to go to this market uh, right now. But I want to come back to your question about why you would talk to the government. And that's because we're not dealing with an entirely private economy. Uh, For most businesses, uh, you have a a large percentage of the Russian economy is still state-owned enterprises. Uh, You have government procurement, uh, particularly in areas like healthcare. So finding out what the government attitude is uh, in an economy like this is really, really key for business.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Um, Yeah, right here and then right there. Uh, yeah, wait for the mic, please. Identify yourself, get your question as quickly as you can.
4: <laughs> uh, I have a question for Minister Valaya. Uh, you always rightfully argue that the Eurasian Economic Union is a purely economic project. Uh, at the same time, we do know that uh, whenever there are disagreements on a higher political level, some member states... Uh, usually make threats to either leave the union or uh, stop any further integration, which is a big surprise because, you know, you perfectly know that uh, it is not Russia who primarily benefits from the Eurasian economic integration. So the question is, how stable is the Eurasian economic union? Uh, Is it serious? And uh, will it be there for a long time or at least long enough to achieve its goals? And this is what probably your international partners and businesses and investors from all over the world want to know. Thank you. you.
1: I think uh, the fact that we do have sometimes quite heated discussions on all the levels, and we overcome these uh, discussions with the idea that we have not to stop the integration, but to deepen the integration, shows that the Eurasian Economic Union is here to stay, and it's a very, very serious project, because the first year of the union, 2015, was not easy. And maybe from my point of view, it's for the best, because we have situation with sanctions, contra sanctions, we have a situation with a devaluation of a Russian ruble, which provided imbalances within the single economic space, and finally, uh, supported uh, and led to a devaluation of other currencies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And each time we had serious discussions what we have to do. Maybe we have to do something temporary to stop the integration. But always the result is the same. No, we have to deepen the integration. Because we really think that it's an economic union and it provides very positive results for everybody. More results for small economies, obviously smaller results for Russia, but at the same time, when we uh, have our internal and analytical uh, job being done, we always see positive uh, results for everybody. So I think it's a very serious project. We took into account All our own previous mistakes, and we made lots of them in the 90s, at the beginning of the year 2000, etc. We took into account the mistakes of the European Union because they are pioneers in the economic integration, and for them it was more difficult. So I think that hopefully we will see our union to deepen and prosper.
3: Let me me add a less uh, diplomatic (coughs) answer on this. Having lived through the 1990s when Russia came up with Uh, Many, many different projects, uh, some of which were clearly intended to recreate pieces of, uh, you know, Soviet cooperation. Uh, When the Eurasian Economic Union uh, appeared, many of us just kind of smirked and said, here we go again. Uh, And I clearly don't feel this way uh, at this point. Uh, And I think there were two key things for me that made a difference. Uh, The first was what Tatiana just said, the European Union. Nearly everybody uh, who works in the Eurasian Economic Commission in one way or another talks about the European Union as one of the blueprints uh, for what they're doing. Uh, and secondly, there's a real structure uh, in place now, which is very different than these other projects where basically you took some discredited Russian politician, you gave him a new agency, you put him uh, you know, somewhere outside uh, you know, the outer uh, beltway of Russia, and you were done. That's not what has happened here. Uh, and I think that's why it's it's worth our time to try to uh, work with this.
5: Uh, this. This gentleman right here. Uh, thank you, George. Mihais. Um, uh, Question specifically for Minister Varavaya. What is the impact of the agreement signed on May 8th between uh, Russian President Putin and Chinese President, respectively, between for e EAU, uh, e, sorry, euro sorry European Union and Silk Road project. If you can elaborate further the impact of uh, Silk Road fund, $40 billion, and uh, Asian Infrastructure Bank with, I understand, $100 billion uh, capital, uh, and further, uh, if you can elaborate, the fact that the European countries and probably U.S. will, will join also uh, are part of this Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank.
1: You know, on the 8th of uh, May, uh, two documents were signed. One was a decision of the member states of the Union, of all uh, presidents of the Union, to start negotiations with China on a trade and economic agreement on behalf of the Union and China. The first agreement of such na- nature, because it's not a, a free trade, it's a non-preferential. Something similar to my mind, it will be like an agreement, for example... Uh, Russia-Kazakhstan has with European Union partnership and cooperation agreement in economic sphere. But at the same time, you are right, on the 8th of May, President of Russia and leader of China signed a memorandum. It's not an agreement, it's a memorandum. But when Russia signed this memorandum, of course it was a result of discussions within other member states of the union that we will try to interconnect two huge projects, Eurasian Economic Union and China's initiative. Because, for example, in certain spheres, they can overlap. Because when we speak about transport infrastructure in Central Asia, it can be in the territory of the Eurasian Economic Union. It can be also the part of this uh, initiative. So, And for quite a long period of time, there was a, a view that Chinese initiative can uh, be counterproductive for the Union, that these two initiatives are are competitors. But we really think, and this memorandum shows, that these two initiatives are very compatible because uh, China will work not only uh, on a bilateral scale with other member states or the Union, but will work with the union as such, because you can't make a decision on transport or infrastructure without taking into account that in the union we also have our common transport policy, we have common energy policy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in this memorandum, as I said, uh, speaking, there is a very interesting phrase, that the result of these consultations on the future uh, interconnection between two initiatives should be idea how we could create common economic space between Eurasian Economic Union and China. We are not speaking about single economic space. We are not speaking about free trade zone. We are speaking about common economic space, which could be similar to the idea we have common economic space between our union and European Union. And the result will be that these will be, as I said, some similar partnerships there will be more harmonization in this part of the Eurasia. And of course, that will lead to promoting investments, uh, infrastructure, etc. in the region.
0: Very good. Uh, the woman sitting right there in the absolute center of the, of the building, of the outdoor. Thank you. My name is Betsy Kapner. I am the Office of the US Trade
6: Representative. Senator. there we go, Um, but I should give the standard caveat that my question is my own, the views are my own, not those of my agency or my government. Um, My question is somewhat administrative for Minister Valiavaev, but with a bigger backdrop. And that is, I echo the Dan's comments about, um, encouraged by your comment, your reference to com- competitive jurisdictions and different ideas and, because there are, there are different ones among the different member states. So my administrative question is, with the addition of the Kyrgyz Republic in Armenia to the um, Eurasian Economic Union, how is that gonna be reflected in the Eurasian Economic Commission? Will there be a reallocation of Um, responsibilities? Will there be new ministers uh, added, new people brought in? And and part of the reason why I ask that is uh, as a result of that perhaps redistribution, will there be a greater voice perhaps for Kazakhstan and Armenia, as were mentioned, to bring in some of the best practices, to bring in perhaps a more liberal liberal perspective, which let's say sometimes is not always the perspective that is put forward and followed by the government of Russia. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. My answer is, yes, there will be a relocation. And starting the 1st of February 2016, our commission will be chaired by the representatives of Armenia, who is currently the ambassador of Armenia to the United States, Mr. Tigran Sarkisyan. He used to be a prime minister at the period of negotiations between Armenia and Eurasian Economic Union, and he will be the next head of the commission. It's already decided. Uh, what will stay uh, unchanged? We already have equal representation of the member states. Now we have three ministers from each country. Starting the next commission, February uh, uh, 2016, there will be two representatives from each country. So we have equal representation of members. Of course, once we are nominated, we no longer uh, are representing the governments. We are supranational bureaucrats. We do not really receive any instructions, and we vote as we feel professionally necessary. All the decisions, the majority of the decisions, are taken by the qualified majority. That means that any decision can be taken without the voices or the nominees from the Russian Federation, if it's important. And the current commission, I would say, is very liberal in mind. And it does not concern only the representatives of Kazakhstan or other. I think that all of us are very liberal oriented because it's easier for us to um, vote for what we think professionally necessary without thinking about some internal economical or political situations. Because, for example, I worked uh, for the Russian government and when we had to make decisions concerning rise in uh, customs duties or lowering customs duties, there were always lots of issues to take into account. Budget consequences, the situation with the concrete uh, uh, enterprises, et cetera. Now in the commission, we mostly look to the regulatory measures. Russia's obligations to WTO, uh, later Kazakhstan obligations, how it will affect industry or the union and the whole, etc. We don't think about the budget. So I can't say who will be among the members of the next commission. That's for the presidents to decide, and I think it will be decided in December. But I really hope that the commission will be not less liberal, because the chairman of the commission will already know him, and I think you know him as well. So I think you can hope for this liberal orientation in the future as well.
0: Does anybody have a question for Brigitte?
2: You do. Hi, my name is Contessa Bourbon from the New York Times. I'd like to ask the panelists, how do you deal with oligarchs in Russia? What important reforms have been established by the Putin government? And for Mr. Russell, how do oligarchs in Russia impact American businesses?
0: We, we might need to extend this a couple of hours, I think. Uh, <laughs> do, do you guys have brief, brief responses to that?
3: I, I think I'd pass on that, frankly. I don't think that's really relevant to what we're trying to do here today. I, I'm happy to talk to you separately.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's, pro- that's probably a good idea. It's, considering since we're, we're at the end of uh, our time, and I, I want to get a couple more questions, um, but please join us afterwards. And, Talk talk to them. Uh, So I'm gonna let's get let's get two questions and uh, we'll ask them in order and then it'll be a competition to see which question is best and that's what's gonna get answered I guess. So (laughs) these two right here.
4: Thank you for your graciousness, <laughs> and thank, <laughs> thank you for convening this important event. It's, it's great to see it, and thanks to
3: the panelists. Two very quick administrative like technical questions, if I may ask Minister
4: Valavaya. Number one is Armenia is essentially the only member state of the EAEU that is not physically attached, with the exception of Kaliningrad, but that's a bit of a different
3: case. So how does the technical aspect of this work? I know there has been a solution, but can you elaborate on that? And the second technical question is about Kyrgyzstan's WTO um, obligations. As far as I understand their customs duties are lower
4: than what is currently the case. So will Kyrgyzstan have to renegotiate these WTO terms, or will the EAU uh, lower the tariffs? Thank you. Uh,
3: Not-
0: Let's get the second question also just so we can consolidate.
2: And uh, one of my questions is also about Armenia. if
4: there is the talk of um, Armenia possibly signing some special agreement with the Eastern Par- Partnership, and how do you see these two working together? And what, what do you see as a possibility of uh, Armenia being a member of both? Um, and the other
3: question is about Azerbaijan. Do you uh, foresee Azerbaijan joining the Eurasian Union
0: or not? Thank you. And joining
6: what? Uh, the Eurasian Customs
0: Union, the Economic Union. Is it an a member? So,
1: uh, concerning renunciating uh, obligations to WTO, not only Kyrgyzstan but also Armenia has to renounce its obligations to WTO because from the first day of joining the union, they took the common customs tariff with just a number of certain exclusions. But they already notified the WTO that they want to renegotiate and suggested uh, these discussion talks. Yes. Concerning Armenia and um, uh, the lack of physical frontier. You know, for a long period of time, Armenia and some other countries considered it's an obstacle to joining uh, um, Armenia to the Eurasian Economic Union. But then we looked into the matter uh, more attentively, we understood that Armenia and the other member states of the union do not trade in uh, coal or steel they mostly trade in um, uh, some uh, textiles agricultural products etc cetera, etc cetera. and so the lack of physical uh, frontier is important but not crucial and for example russia and kaliningrad region doesn't have physical frontier either so we looked into the procedures which russia applies to Kaliningrad, and we use them as a model for um, uh, relations between Armenia and the Union. Though it's even simpler than with Kaliningrad, because Kaliningrad is a a free economic zone. So there is a transit procedure, which is simpler than usual procedure. But if products, and there are lots of products like uh, agricultural products, uh, jewellery, etc., goes by plane then there is no customs checks like uh, in all other situations. And speaking about political agreement with the European Union, we are all very happy that European Union desi- uh, decided to resume the political talks with Armenia because from the very beginning they said that joining Armenia doesn't mean that the negotiations should stop the political chapter can be negotiated. As far as the economic relations between the European Union and Armenia, of course, they will uh, take form of the relations between the European Union and uh, Eurasian Economic Union. And quite recently, on behalf of the Union, we uh, uh, sent a letter to um, Mr. Juncker, head of the European Commission, to start consultations which could lead to uh, finalizing the roadmap, which in its turn would lead to a common economic space between the two unions. So now we're expecting the answer uh, on behalf of the uh, European Commission. Concerning Azerbaijan, well, our union is open to any country to join but we are not pressing anybody and we are not looking forward to increasing numbers because we consider, again, we have to look into the European experience. But if any country would like to join, then it will be the consensus of all member states of the European Union whether to start negotiations with this country or not.
0: Um, We've already encroached about seven minutes into our beer and wine time. It might save somebody a driving under the influence ticket going home, but I think we should um, end this now. I know there are more questions out there. Uh, I hope that you guys are all joining us and you all are invited to join us uh, out in the Winter Garden for uh, some drinks and uh, light snacks. Thank you very much for coming. Please uh, help me uh, thank the panel.